0: The reading this morning is from the Gospel of John chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Hello again, everybody. Earlier on in the prayers, I entered a controversial zone by praying into the politics of abortion. And here we have a story of sexual scandal and I'm about to enter the political zone again which is very dangerous twice in one morning. I don't know what you make of the whole sad story of Matt Hancock just last week. A week is a long time in politics. It was just last weekend. And uh, the affair he had uh, but he lost his job not for that but for contravening the social distancing. And the world around us doesn't seem to be too upset about the affair he had. Uh, And scandal, sexual ethics, what's the right thing to do, different traps, all come to the fore with this story. I wonder what Jesus would say if Matt Hancock was presented to him or others involved in this. Uh, What we do know is what Jesus did with this woman that was presented to him. I think a very remarkable woman. She's committed adultery, it seems, all by herself. That's very, very impressive. Where on earth was the man? This... um, This is clearly a trap and a scandal, and they're not caring about her. She's a tool being used or a pawn by the authorities. Uh, What does God say to us at St. Paul's? What does God say to you as an individual when we come across these situations, some of which are asked to trip us up, and some of which we encounter people who are very vulnerable indeed? So let's pray that God would speak to us this morning. Lord Jesus, how we praise you, that you are full of grace and truth. And as we look at the way you handled this situation, uh, with your wisdom and your grace and your truth, send your spirit on us now, on me as I speak, on us as we listen, and give us grace to be more like you, individually and together, that in the various scandals and controversies we find ourselves caught up in in this nation or in this society that we would be able to react as you did so speak we pray and we ask it in your name amen well it was a very clever trap the authorities are determined to bring Jesus down uh, this is between John 7 and John 9 if you're reading it in the gospels you'll know there's a little bit of question as to whether this was there in the John's gospel as it was originally written uh, there seems to be no doubt at all though that this was a story of something that happened to Jesus well attested down the years. Uh, the authorities are trying to trap Jesus. They know he's coming into the temple courts to teach every morning. And early in the morning he's there teaching again. And they bring her this woman. Uh, they bring him this woman. Let's just read the story again, verses 3 to 5, if we put those up. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? It's a very clever trap. If Jesus says, yes, the law of Moses is right, adultery is terrible, and the punishment there is stoning, uh, then he doesn't seem to be the teacher of grace and forgiveness and mercy and compassion that he's become so popular for. And if he upholds the law of Moses and the death sentence there, then what happens to all that grace and forgiveness and love and mercy? On the other hand, if he says, no, she shouldn't be stoned, well, then he's clearly not, not upholding the law of Moses. And the teachers can say, well, he's clearly not from God. He's contradicting the Bible as we've got it. And they think they've got a very clever trap. And verse 6 tells us that Jesus just takes a bit of time before answering. They were using this question as a trap, he realised that, in order to have a basis for accusing him. But he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Now before we come to what Jesus said, I find that the church today is presented with a very similar question or series of questions. Uh, Our society very, very different from the one that Jesus uh, lived in. We have a society incredibly permissive on sexual ethics and the church has to decide where we stand on these questions. And often the way the question gets asked us, whatever we say feels wrong if we uphold the law of God in the scriptures that feels harsh if we let go of it then we've let go of what the scriptures teach and we might as well pack up and go home if we're doing that how do we answer the questions that come before us many of them very live questions with individuals in moral dilemmas and some of them come to us deliberately as traps to trip us up well I know churches have erred on one side or the other There are times when the church has felt harsh and judgmental and sat light to grace and compassion. There are other times when the church just goes with the spirit of the age and lets go of what Jesus taught in the scriptures. Tragically, it seems that the Methodist church in our country has done that this week uh, and going with a non-biblical ethical standard on marriage and letting go of what the scriptures teach. The world has shown us a better way they've said. Uh, For the church, which way do we go? The Church of England is caught up in this debate at the moment. A process called Living in Love and Faith, short code LLF, is trying to work out how do we uphold what Jesus teaches in a world that is so different? How do we hold on to the truth of Jesus in the scriptures? How do we demonstrate compassion and grace? And the way the question is often asked If someone comes down on one side or the other, neither of them quite feel like the way of Jesus. It's often a trap. Today the questions asked not so much of a woman caught in adultery of us, but perhaps of gay marriage. Or increasingly, what about threesome marriages? Uh, The world uh, has gone down the route of gay marriage. I remember talking to our previous MP about this and urging him not to vote in favour. He said, well, if two people love each other, why shouldn't they? I said, so when the, when the bill comes, if three people love each other, why shouldn't they be married? You'll vote for that as well. And he said, don't be ridiculous, but it's coming. It was not far away. How do we hold on to the standards of Jesus? How do we demonstrate grace and compassion? We can either look harsh, and churches can have a reputation for being harsh and uncaring, Or we can do the sort of cheap grace thing, which is, well, of course, everything's fine. God bless you. God loves you. Jesus doesn't condemn. I'm sure that's fine. And we've let go of the scriptures. And we can feel that tension. And Jesus was presented with a very similar tension. So what did he do? Let's read again from verse 6 to verse 8. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger when they kept on questioning him he straightened up and said to them let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her again he stooped down and wrote on the ground well lots of people have speculated what Jesus was writing off the ground was he writing the ten commandments down was he just doodling we don't know I would be fairly sure that Jesus is praying and buying time. Father, what should I do? What should I do? What do I say? Father, give me wisdom. This poor woman, however sinful she is, caught here in this terrible trap. What do I say? What do I do? And the wisdom comes from God the Father. And Jesus stands up straight and looks at them. His eyes, I can imagine, full of holiness. And says, if any one of you is without sin, you cast the first stone. And then he goes back and writes again on the ground. Is it the Ten Commandments? Is it sins he's writing down that he knows that those there are guilty of? What is it? And the ones who've brought the accusation, the old eldest, start putting their stones down and disappearing until they all go. It was a risky strategy. But very, very effective. And just remind us of the end of the story. Some of you will know this well, but if you haven't heard this story before, uh, let's just remember this from verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now Jesus holds these two things in perfect balance in this situation. He does not condemn her neither do I condemn you did earlier in the gospel John three sixteen and 17 uh, says this have we got John three sixteen and 17 there we go for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life and the next verse verse 17 for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world Jesus has come to save people like this woman not to condemn her He's come to save people like you and me, not to condemn us. He's come, he will pay the price for your sin and mine and this woman and everybody's when he dies on the cross. He's not come to condemn. But neither has he come to condone sin. And too often today, I hear people saying, Jesus didn't come to condemn, therefore it's all fine. But Jesus doesn't condone the sin either, and he says to her in verse 11, Neither do I condemn you, but go now and leave your life of sin. We are not to condone sin either. Holiness matters. Marriage matters. God is a God of love and faithfulness, and adultery is a terrible, terrible sin, so destructive in its effects. And that Hancock affair, that's two families, six children, friends, and knock on, devastated. As throughout our society, people devastated uh, when marriages break down. God is a God of love and faithfulness. We've been made in his image, and we are to love in a faithful way, to reflect that. Now, we are to follow the way of Jesus, and that means we are not to condemn people, nor are we to condone sin. And how we do both of those together is the really difficult thing. We need more than the wisdom of Solomon, the wisdom of Jesus. We're not to be judgmental. We're not to be like the Pharisees or holier than thou. But nor are we to condone sin. God's standards are clear in the scriptures. And sexual morality is clear in the scriptures. That God's intention for marriage is a man and a woman for life or for singleness. Those are the two estates that are blessed and honoured by God and Jesus and Paul were both single and demonstrate a full life. Now our world is very different from Jesus' world as I said earlier and there there's this harsh application of the law. Today it's an anything goes and we need to tread the way of Jesus not condemning and not condoning and it's so hard to get this right. I remember preaching a series on this Gosh, it must be five years ago now. I still stand by those sermons. there, headed godly relationships if you want to look them up. But I remember how difficult it is to tread a balance of being clear on the scriptural truth, uh, both with grace and compassion. And I think at the time when I preached that, I was a bit too defensive. God is good and he, he's made us in his image and his word is for our good that we would flourish. And in holding these two together... Let me give uh, not condemning and not condoning. We need to be including everybody who comes. Jesus did not exclude this woman. Everybody is welcome. Jesus invites all. Doesn't matter who you are male or female, old or young, black or white rich or poor, heterosexual or homosexually oriented, whatever categories we want to do, everyone is welcome. We need a radical inclusion and welcome of everybody. But we also need an ethical exclusivity because Jesus is not inclusive ethically. He doesn't say however you choose to live is fine. He calls people to repent and to lead a holy life and his way is a narrow way And his morality and ethics are very tight and exclusive. And we need somehow to have this radical inclusivity where people feel welcome and at the same time a call to an ethical exclusivity that is the holy way, that is so difficult to tread this balance. Uh, And in our world today where people say, if you don't approve of what I do, I don't feel welcome, that's really difficult because we need to welcome people, And then challenge people to leave their life of sin. That's how Jesus did it. Uh, Jesus died for the sins of everybody. Including this woman caught in adultery. And the man who we don't know whether he was just let off. Or whether he ran quicker than they could catch him. We don't don't quite know. uh, The story doesn't tell us. But Jesus is there with the woman. I'm not going to condemn you. But then nor am I going to condone this sin. And in this area of sexual morality, Jesus is so uh, challenging. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 27 to 30. Jesus says this, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who's looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And obviously the other way around as well. Jesus takes not just the action, but the thoughts that lie behind it. Uh, the same with murder. It's not just of don't murder, but don't hate And Jesus intensifies the moral challenge and holiness. And yet there's this radical inclusion of people. Uh, In today's hot debates, some people say Jesus never mentioned homosexuality specifically. No, but he did mention sexual immorality, which included that, known well at the day. So, for example, Mark 7, 20 to 23 says this, Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. From within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, uh, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The word sexual immorality, porneia, the word we get pornography from, includes any sexual behavior that is outside heterosexual marriage, either before it or outside it or after it, or homosexual sex, or it's very, very exclusive ethically, and Jesus upheld that at the same time as demonstrating this radical welcome. Jesus says, "Come as you are. you don't have to get sorted before you come." whereas so often people feel they have to have their life together before they come to church. But then he says, "But you don't stay as you are. You repent and follow his narrow road." And how we do this both and is so. Difficult to be inclusive in our welcome and exclusive in our ethics. Some churches really good on the ethical side uh, and holiness and following Jesus, but often it feels harsh. Other churches really good on the welcome, but in Bonhoeffer's phrase, it's cheap grace because there's no challenge to holiness. How do we do both? Uh, I've genuinely had those conversations with people on the fringe of the church. Think of one person. Uh, on the edge of the church, who I had a conversation, she looked me in and said, unless you approve of what I'm doing, I don't feel welcome. And I'd say, you are welcome. But Jesus says, leave your life of sin. Uh, and she chose not to come. But how do we do this in the way of Jesus that is so winsome? We need God's Holy Spirit. We need to be clear that the scriptures are the word of God and that they are for our good. We need to uphold God's teaching on sexual morality. And be gracious and welcoming. The world says it's not possible. The world does not really judge Matt Hancock for his affair. It's for the standards of the virus uh, and the social distancing. The world says it's not possible. If people feel this sexual urge strongly, they should be free to express it. That's not the way of Jesus. People are very reluctant to say marriage is the best way to raise children. Every study that's more than a few people shows that children thrive where there's a man and a woman living together faithfully, ideally marriage. Uh, living together faithfully, if not married, is better. There are, of course, many single parents doing a fantastic job of raising children. If that's you, we want to support you and love you. But you know that it would be easier and better if there were to. But our politicians are so afraid of causing offence that they won't celebrate what is clearly, by every standard and research that's come out, the best way to raise children. Our society used to honour this and was really harsh to people who fell outside it. Now our society is very, very welcoming to everybody else but is not honouring of marriage in the same way. How do we tread this line? I want to recommend two books to you by a wonderful guy called Ed Shaw, who is a pastor down in Bristol. Ed is same-sex attracted, he's a celibate gay man. He wrote the book The Plausibility Problem a few years ago, uh, saying, is it plausible that a person can live with same-sex attraction if they're gay-oriented and be celibate? Is that plausible? And he shows how God's design is not just for us as individuals with our own relationships one by one, but as a church community to include, and he talks beautifully about his church community, the families he's part of, his godchildren, the friends. We need people around us. We're not designed to be on our own, and God's ethics are only plausible given a Christian community that supports us. Uh, He's written just more recently, either this year or late last year, a book called Purposeful Sexuality. And in this, he's asking, why does God give us these sex drives if we can't all put them into practice? And he describes how, as a gay man, going to weddings has been torture for him because he has these sex drives which he knows the way of Jesus are not for him to put into practice. Uh, And what he writes beautifully about is that our sex drives are there uh, as a pointer jesus 's relationship with the church, just as in Ephesians five it says that marriage is a pointer to Christ and the church, which is the deep reality there 's no marriage in heaven uh, we 'll have Jesus and the church, whether we 've been single in this life or happily married or unhappily married. Uh, everyone can have relationship with Jesus and be part for all eternity of this great relationship and He describes marriage as if you like a trailer to the real event, like if you go to the cinema. Uh, you get the Perlandine adverts, and they give trailers to films coming up. He describes marriage as a trailer in, this, in our life, to point us to the eternal reality of God's love for us. Uh, and everyone can be caught up in this. And he now writes, it's a short book. Let me just read to you one short paragraph. That's why I now enjoy going to weddings as a single man in my 40s, with no prospect of ever having one of my own. I used to see them as adverts for a life that would never be mine, and as a result, found them rather painful. I now see them as trailers for an experience that will be mine one day soon, and in a much better way than any of the 100 excellent weddings I've ever been to over the last 25 years. They're a picture of the truly happily ever after that is possible for any of us who've had our lives joined to Jesus forever. We have these strong sexual drives. That God's wired into us as people. They are fallen because every part of us is tainted by the fall, But they're meant to point us to the intimacy God has for us. And the Bible is a love story from beginning to end. That God loves you and me with a passion deeper than any human love we've ever felt. And part of our sex drive is to give and to help us understand the passion with which God loves us. Read the book of Hosea if you're not sure about that. It's all about that. God's intense love for his people. Uh, I need to stop now going for hours in this this is the world we're caught up in this is a current debate in the church of england and for all churches how do we do grace and truth how do we not condemn and not condone we're out of step with society on this and as in so many ways because we follow the way of jesus it's a narrow path but we mustn't be silent out of fear of causing offence But we do need the wisdom that Jesus shows. Father, how do we address this situation? Uh, So we're going to pray. Can I invite you to stand? The band would come back. We're going to have a slightly longer prayer time than usual because this raises so many different issues. First of all, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would pour your spirit down. Lord Jesus, send your spirit. Fill us afresh as individuals and as your church. And Help us to be full of grace and truth, not condemning, but not condoning, with a radical welcome of everyone, whatever they've done, and yet a determination to lead people to repentance and holiness and following your narrow way. We pray, Holy Spirit, for those listening to this, or those we know, caught up in any form of sexual shame like that woman caught in adultery and paraded before Jesus and others. And we pray, Lord Jesus, for your mercy and compassion for those uh, flirting with adultery now or even caught up in it. We pray, Lord, for you to say you don't condemn but you're not gonna condone, leave the life of sin. For those caught up with the shame of pornography, for any who have had abortions and are still wrestling with all the guilt and shame many years later, Lord Jesus, give us grace to welcome, to demonstrate your compassion and forgiveness and for you to restore to wholeness We thank you that with you there is no condemnation. You are a God of forgiveness and grace. But we bow before you and acknowledge your standards are so pure. And we all fall short. Have mercy upon us. We pray for our single people among us, whether heterosexual or homosexual, in how to honor you. We pray for good relationships, for a really close church family, for good friendships. For those you call to stay single, to be true to you. For those you call to marriage, to be faithful in their marriages. For a church, for our church to be a place of deep love and friendship. And we thank you that for all of us, whatever our orientation, whatever our experience, you invite us into relationship with Jesus for all eternity, where there will be no more suffering and no more sin and no more shame. Give us courage to speak for Jesus and point to him. Forgive us for being silent out of fear of causing an offence. Give us wisdom when to speak and when not to. And for our wider Church of England, in this debate on how to live with love and faith, we pray that for grace to hold fast to the truth of the scriptures as the word of God, And to do it in such a way that there is no condemnation but grace. So come Holy Spirit. Let's just keep a moment of quiet before him.